about a month ago, my family and I had the privilege of hosting a retired military colonel and his family in our home. We had a lovely day, but as this man had only just retired, he was still really working through his change in status from colonel to civilian. On a very practical level, that included his clothing and appearance. He talked about how wonderful it was to grow his hair out and how he was still getting used to the idea of choosing what clothes to wear each day now that he no longer had to wear his uniform. Indeed, he needed a whole new set of clothes. <laughs> his change in status affected his change in clothing. Even in our gene-loving culture, we would agree that attire is meant to fit certain occasions or is appropriate for certain roles. We don't expect to see a woman in a bridal gown unless she's getting married. When we see police officers or doctors or cardinals in uniform, we expect certain behaviors from them, help or healing or prayers. In all these cases, the clothing they wear is helpful because it identifies who they are and as a result, what we can expect from them. Our passage this morning tells us that those of us who have put our trust in Jesus also have a new set of clothes we're to put on. We too have had a change in status that affects our change in clothing. But our makeover isn't quite like colonel to civilian. Rather, it's more like prison inmate to respected high-level official. See, as we've been learning in this series from the book of Ephesians, we are one new people. The Apostle Paul, writing this as an introduction to the Christian faith to be circulated among several churches springing up in the first century, spent the first half of the letter describing who we are in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3 emphasize all that God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. We have been chosen adopted into God's family, forgiven, lavished in grace, made alive, called to do great works, and reconciled across racial and socioeconomic barriers, to name just a few. The second half of the letter, chapters four through six, emphasize everything we are to do as a result of what God has done for us. So Ephesians 4, 1, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, you're God's people. Act like it. Be who you already are. You've had a change in status, so put on the right attire. Dress for the occasion. Today's passage, Ephesians 4, 17 to 31, elaborates on this by describing the clothing we are to put on as God's children. And what I find so astounding about these verses is that it isn't super spiritual stuff. It's actually very ordinary things like how we talk, what we get mad at, and how we handle our anger, and how we work and spend money. We'll look at each one of these topics in just a few minutes, but first, I want to start, as Paul does, with some preliminary assumptions about living as followers of Jesus. These are found in Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. You can follow along on the screen or on page 1779 in the Pew Bible. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He goes on to describe this behavior in verses 18 and 19, summarizing, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. 
Verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created in, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I see four preliminary statements about growing in Christ here. First, change is possible, even expected. Paul makes a clear distinction here about who these people were before they came to know Jesus and who they are to become after entering into a relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 17. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Remember, Paul isn't using the word Gentile as simply an ethnic designation, as in non-Jewish. He's using it in a more generic way to describe the culture of the majority of people who were coming into the faith at the time, namely pagans. Unlike the first Jewish converts to Christianity who had a moral compass rooted in Torah and the Ten Commandments, these people had little moral foundation. And so the early church was faced with this question, do people who put their faith in Jesus have to change? Paul says adamantly in Galatians, which John referenced a few weeks ago, no, you don't have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. But as he'll say here, you do need to become Christ-like. You do need to take on the character of Jesus if you're going to make him your leader. Put off the old, put on the new. Change is expected. But note, this expectation for change is directed towards those who have already committed to follow Jesus, not those who haven't. Sadly, I think this is one of the ways the church has turned people off to Christianity because we sometimes hold people to a standard they never signed up for. If we must judge behavior, let's start with our own, with those of us who have come to know the love and grace and forgiveness and life that Jesus offers. Others may choose to espouse Jesus' values because they're a good way to live, but the call to live differently is first and foremost to the church. Second, we are to take responsibility for this change. Why else would Paul command it if it wasn't to some extent our responsibility? Now it's true, the active put on Put off in verses 22 to 23 is sandwiched between the more passive be made new. But the process of spiritual growth is always a partnership between us and God. Just because we're saved by grace does not mean we just sit back and hope to grow into maturity. We're to take action, do our part. Now, sometimes people in the church get nervous about the idea of exerting any effort when it comes to faith. I get that. Paul is emphatic in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we are saved by grace through faith and it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. We cannot earn God's forgiveness by how we live. Grace and earning are fundamentally opposed. But grace and effort are not. In fact, we're told many times in the Bible to live a certain way and as a result of the grace we have found in Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. 
As one writer says, working for our salvation is heresy. Working out our salvation is basic Bible. We will not drift into spiritual maturity. We must seek it. Third, change begins in the mind and then flows out to behavior. In both cases, whether Paul is describing the old self to take off or the new self to put on, he emphasizes the importance of right thinking. For the former, it's their futility of thinking. For the latter, it's to be made new in the attitude of your minds. If we want to see behavior change, we must start with the mind. Not that behavior doesn't matter, but if you start with the mind, behavior will follow. Numerous disciplines today, like cognitive psychology, attest to the power of the mind in shaping behavior. I think this is why Paul is so deliberate about contrasting the old and new life. Put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The old self is corrupt. It's decaying. Its path is death. The new self is new life created by God. The old self is deceitful. It makes promises it can't deliver on. The new self is like God in true righteousness and holiness. If we want to see real change in our lives, maybe it's worth considering how Jesus' way is actually a good way to live. Jesus claimed, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's not to say there isn't a standard. Of course there is, and it's Jesus himself. So fourth, the goal for change is Christ-likeness. Verse 24, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. God's character is on full display through the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. He is our example. We are to resemble him in every aspect of his character. So to summarize thus far, change is not only possible but expected. We're to do our part in seeing that change. We're to focus on the mind, not just behavior, and our goal is Christ-likeness. Now, what does that really look like in our lives? Paul gets real practical in verses 26 to 31 by addressing how a Christ-like person handles anger, talks, and works. Let's look at each of those in turn. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anger. This is one area I don't think the church has done well in teaching about, often with disastrous consequences. Either we think Christians aren't ever to be angry, and so we deny or stuff our anger, prohibiting real reconciliation and often causing it to seep out in other ways, or we legitimize it, using righteous anger as a license to behave in cruel ways for the sake of a good cause. It's true, the Bible describes instances where Jesus got angry, and often it was on behalf of someone else. Like the time in Mark 3, 5, when Jesus healed a man with a disability, but the religious leaders were mad because it was the Sabbath. That made Jesus angry. But there are also numerous instances where we are strongly cautioned against anger and its effects. 
Jesus himself warns us in Matthew 5 of how anger can ruin and break relationships. James, Jesus' brother, observes in James 1 how often our anger isn't for the right reasons, so we should be slow to become angry. Paul's words here in verse 26, in your anger, do not sin, are a great summary of the Bible's view. They both permit and restrict anger. Permit. It's okay to be angry, even if it's not righteous anger. The literal translation of in your anger, don't sin, is be angry and sin not. Now, it would be overstating it to say that anger is commanded here, but it's worth noting that this is a bit more forceful than we generally acknowledge. It's more like one scholar translated it, be angry if you're angry and don't sin. As we'll see in a moment, the Bible's overall goal is to see that anger is dealt with properly, and that starts by admitting it's there to begin with. The process of reconciliation is not just truncated, but actually prohibited when we deny stuff or can't see our own anger. For some of us, the most spiritual thing we could do this week might be admitting we are angry. Only once we admit it can we then deal with it properly. Anger is permitted, but it's also restricted. Admitting it doesn't mean you fly off the handle at people. It's so deadly a poison, it warns three parameters. Do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. Paul elaborates on not sinning in verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. These are not the words describing the initial emotion of anger. These are the words describing it growing, festering, and either lashing out in shouts or slanderous comments or settling into a cold resentment, wishing someone's ill. Which is why, Paul says in verse 27, deal with it. In the first century, the day ended at sundown. This is a great example of taking the Bible seriously without taking it literally. Paul isn't saying we must literally talk with someone before midnight if we are angry with them, but he's saying it's important to deal with it. Don't rehearse it and nurse it in your mind. Instead, reconcile with the person as soon as possible. And when you can't speak with the person you were angry with, you can at least speak with God about it and leave it with him. For indeed, that is ultimately the goal anytime someone has wronged us releasing the matter to God and letting him deal with it, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you, verse 32 says. Perhaps that's what's hinted at with the don't give the devil a foothold or a place to stand. Paul uses that same word in Romans 12, 19, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room, leave footing for God's wrath. Leave space for God to deal with the wrong. He alone can judge. This, in essence, is what we're saying when we forgive. I choose to let God handle it. I will not hold this offense against this person. I will forfeit my right to hurt them for hurting me. Let me ask us this morning, what clothing do we need to take off with regard to anger? What do we need to put on? 
I've been convicted this week that I am often so angry about the things that Jesus probably wouldn't be angry about, which means I'm probably not angry enough at the things that really upset him. How about you? Maybe you need to admit it. Maybe you need to restrain it. Maybe there's someone you need to forgive. Change is possible. Remember, you're God's child. Isn't it time you got some new clothes? Managing anger is so crucial to our relationships, so Paul starts there, but he knows another critical aspect is how we talk to one another. Speech. Paul starts here with the bare minimum in verse 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Now, at first, this seems odd, even laughable. We aren't liars. But maybe we do well to consider the small ways we seek to manage people's perceptions of us by what we say. If you didn't manage the time well and you're running late, tell your appointment that rather than saying traffic was bad. If your coworker is the one who really had the insight that made the difference on the project, correct your supervisor when she affirms it as your idea. Listen to one writer describe the, tr- the challenge of truthful, disciplined speech. Quote, the tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I've done some wrong thing or even some right thing that I think you might misunderstand and discover that you know about it, I will be very tempted to help you understand my action. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification, end quote. Wouldn't it be great if we were free from what others thought of us and could just tell the truth? But that's just the minimum. The real criteria for speaking as God's children is in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit, the word is grace or gift, those who listen. The contrast here is striking. Unwholesome, literally rotten or decaying words causing death versus carefully chosen words that increase the potential of another. Of course, given all Paul has just said about speaking the truth, this doesn't mean saying only positive things. We may have to say hard things to one another, but when we do, it's not so that we feel better. It's so that they are better, so that they are a better person Challenged if need be, but in a way that it could be received, where at the end of the conversation, they might say, thank you, that was helpful. Let me ask us this morning, what clothing do we need to take off with regard to speech? Dishonesty? Self-justification? Foul language? What do we need to put on? A commitment to honest conversations for the growth of the other person or their relationship? Only as we begin to grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ for us, will we be empowered to change into a new creation? Finally, and much more briefly, Paul addresses the topic of work and what we do with the money God has given us. Verse 28 says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Like the admonition to tell the truth, it's pretty easy to gloss over this. We don't steal, or do we? Perhaps if we're completely honest, we might find some subtle ways we do this. How about padded expense accounts? Using company supplies for personal use? Failing to report income on tax reports? Borrowing something of someone else's and not returning it? Using someone else's phone plan dishonestly? Using employee time for something other than work? Those old clothes won't do, Paul says. They don't fit you anymore. Take them off and instead put on a good work ethic, a generous spirit, so that the more you make, the more you give. Why does this matter? Disciplining our anger and our speech can seem self-evident enough, but working hard, giving generously, few things strike at the core of our ability to trust God like giving money away. When we give money away, we are exercising a deep trust that God will take care of our needs and that what he provides will be enough. So let me ask one final time this morning, what article around honest work and money do we need to fling off? How might we trust in Jesus by being generous with our money as well as our time and skills? Now, I know these are pretty high standards. <laughs> we can't live up to how Jesus was with anger and speech and giving generously. Remember, we only seek to do this because we are saved by grace. God reached out to us in love when we did all this wrong, and he continues to. He's not expecting perfection this side of heaven, but he does want progression. And the key to that is a very special someone who I think doesn't get enough press always in the church. Mentioned in verse 30, the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieve the third member of the Trinity? You mean I can make God sad? Yes, we can, and we do. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not a something. He's a someone. And one of his primary job descriptions is to keep us unified. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 3 says. So while he's working hard at that, we're often undermining his work through lies, slander, gossip, angry outbursts, unforgiveness, and greed. And this grieves him. But it isn't just that he's sad when we fail. It's that he's available for our help. One scholar writes about this verse. These words presuppose that the spirit is grieved precisely because he is present to empower us for better things for truth and edifying speech, for anger appropriately channeled. 
Many of you know what a tap back is on your phone. A tap back is a way of responding to a message you have received with an icon. It can be a thumbs up, thumbs down, question mark, whatever. I was thinking this week, what if the Holy Spirit gave us a tap back with each message we sent to people, with how we handle our anger, with what we say to people, with how we spend our time at work and our money? When we don't control our language, maybe he'd give a thumbs down. When we choose to enter into a difficult conversation and say what needs to be said and choose to forgive, maybe he'd give a thumbs up. That's not a comment on God's love for us. It's just a way of reminding us of the power that is available when we call on him for help. May your tap backs this week remind you of the Spirit's presence with you to empower you. Those of us who claim to follow Jesus, it's time to clean out our closets. Like the retired colonel in need of a new wardrobe because his role had changed, we too need new clothes, fitting our status as God's children. We can't just wait for maturity to happen. We've got to do our part. We've got to throw away the shabby clothes that no longer fit and put on the new ones, the ones that identify us as God's children. We can't do this alone. God's spirit is with us, empowering us every step of the way and giving us feedback if we choose to listen. These clothes not only fit our status as God's children, they also look good. Or rather, they make God look good. They're attractive. I wonder, like that early church Paul was addressing in the first century, just how many streams of people might be wooed into relationship with Jesus if we've resembled him in these ordinary ways in our lives. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so grateful that you have brought us near to you in your great love and mercy. Oh Jesus, we thank you that you offered your life for us while we were dead in our sins, unresponsive to you. And oh Spirit, we thank you that you are our invisible presence with us always. Whether we give you props or not, you are there to empower us to live differently. Do your translation work now among us. Help us to know what is the one area we need to take a step into growing, looking more like Jesus, so that those who watch us may see how good and true and beautiful you are. This we ask in the name of Jesus and for his sake.